We had the privilege of continuing in the account of Luke and his telling us about the life of Jesus. We're picking up in chapter 5, starting in verse 27. It says, after that, well, after what? Well, if you weren't here last week, and we're obviously not going to re-preach that sermon, but last week, Jesus, the lame man, remember they put the lame man down through the, the top? of the roof, and when he showed up down there, Jesus actually forgives his sins, and the scribes and Pharisees who had been from all over the country were there to hear him and to basically pass judgment on who they thought he was and what they thought he could do or not do. He takes that moment right then to forgive this guy's sins. I mean, doesn't, and then when they're like, well, who are you to forgive anybody's sins? Only God can forgive sins. Yeah, right, good, glad to see you connected that so that you might know that the Son of Man has the ability to forgive sins. I say to this guy, rise and walk. So after that, it's after that event, the scribes and Pharisees are already unhappy with who he is. They have already decided that we don't know who this guy thinks he is. He's out here trying to do what only God can do. He's blaspheming. Uh, he heals the guy who can walk, but I don't, uh, if, we're, if we're polling the scribes and Pharisees at this moment, uh, show of hands of who thinks Jesus is the Messiah, if there's no hands. They, they no, we're, we're not convinced. You would think that this might be a moment that Jesus would try to be, a, I don't know, a a peacemaker, right? You would think that Jesus is like, okay, I, I've, you know, I got to win these guys over to my side here. I'm gonna, I mean, they're the leaders of the country. I've got to try to get them over here. Um, not so much, actually. Uh, this, what we see here, occurs immediately after that, and this is really important to understand the text. Right after Jesus just got done giving the scribes and Pharisees heart failure as he forgives the guy's sins, he immediately, after that, what does he do? Well, he walks away from that situation. Chances are the scribes and Pharisees are still following him. They're, they're looking for something. That, I mean, they can't really accuse him of anything because he made the lame guy walk. So we've got to hang around with him for a little while longer to see if we can find something to crucify this guy for. Uh, they will, by the way, find that and... Actually, the whole blaspheme thing is what they're going to end up finding him guilty of. But Jesus, knowing they're following him, right? He knows that they're watching this set of events. And even though they have said after the lame guy walking, people are walking around going, wow, we, you know, we have seen remarkable things today. I think Jesus is thinking to himself, <laughs> you haven't seen anything yet. <clears throat> Watch this. In, in modern-day terminology, Jesus is about to troll the scribes and Pharisees. That's, that's what he's about to do. He, he is about to just kind of, <laughs> okay, guys, try this one out. So he walks away from them, and he goes out and notices a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth and says to him, come follow me. This is a call to discipleship. Levi knows exactly what Jesus is asking him. The preaching of Jesus, the preaching of John the Baptist, the repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is, this is not a, a, an unknown message. 
and everyone has heard it and reacted one way or the other to it. So Jesus now goes and he calls Levi and says, come follow me. If you had to pick someone to come follow you in all of the nation of Israel, this would be the absolute last guy you would ever want. This guy is a tax collector. It is difficult to convey just how despised this guy was. Just what an unbelievable outcast this guy was within society. This guy was was barely above a rabid dog. In fact, he might even be below a rabid dog because a dog has rabies, doesn't really have a will anymore. He just kind of acts like a rabid dog. These people were people. And so in the society in which he lived, you have done what? You were a tax collector for the Romans? The tax collecting profession. So they would do a census. Remember when Jesus is born, there's a census. And they would do a census. They would find out exactly how many people are the Romans in the kingdom. And then we would send out to the various governors or whoever king was in charge of the territory. And then they would, they would take uh, down to the, to the tetriarch level. They would sell tax contracts. So we need this much. And so in like 10,000 talent lots, we would sell the ability to collect taxes. And so you would collect taxes. Now, there were two sets of taxes. There was the head tax. There were taxes that the Romans just charged you. And then there were the moving taxes. Levi is part of the moving tax group of people. So if it moved, we taxed it. Great guy, huh? I mean, if you had a cart, we tax that. If you walk by, we tax that. If you walk by with fish, we tax that. If you walk by with wool, we tax that. You would sit in a prominent place and anything that could move, wine, wool, fish, it didn't matter. Whatever you, whatever you brought as a, as a commodity, we taxed it. Now, if the Romans hired people from outside the territory to come do this, well, you could see very quickly you're the person trying to avoid the tax, you don't make anything. You don't have any money. You don't, why? I don't, you know, I sweep floors or something. I don't, I, I, I don't. Okay, and you just find a different route to continue to conduct your business. And you do continue to conduct your business. You just avoid the tax guy. So what the Romans, clever folks that they were, here's what you do. You actually hire someone who lives in the town. Well, he knows who everybody is. He grew up there. No one who's got wealth, he knows who the wealthy people are. He knows who does what. He knows who owns what. And so his job is to actually collect the taxes for the Romans. You're collecting taxes for the Romans? Those godless people? And you have to remember, unlike America, Israel saw no separation between church and state. God was in charge of their nation. And so this is a foreign invader who is coming to take our money. And you're working with them? You handle that dirty Gentile money every day? You, inter- you interact with these people? And then you come and exploit us? We're your people. Okay, so tax collectors, 
they were, they were the outcasts of the outcasts. They, they were loathed. Because, on top of all that, here's how you made money if you're a tax collector. Well, you didn't just collect exactly what the tax was. You collected more than the tax. Why? So that you could <clears throat> make money. That's why. And oh, by the way, if people didn't pay their taxes, well, you think those Roman, like the Roman centurion, what do you think he's doing there? A centurion has 100 Roman soldiers. What do you think they're doing there? Well, they're enforcing the tax laws. That's what they're doing there. If you won't pay your taxes, we just call this guy and he will come. And so you're stealing from your fellow man. Okay, these folks weren't allowed. If you're a tax collector, you can't come to the synagogue anymore. Nope, you are not going to the synagogue doors. If we have a court case, and you know how it is, you all get to serve on the jury. Okay, these guys did not, you didn't get to serve on the jury. You, you had to travel with guards, or we would kill you. The, the, the zealots were people who worked at killing tax collectors. No social friends, except who? Well, who did you hang out with if you were a tax collector? You hung out with other tax collectors. You hang, hung out with criminals. You hung out with people who drank too much, who stole for a living along with you, and uh, people of various ill repute, right? Uh, you know, the interesting folks over there that you shouldn't be hanging around. That's exactly who you hung around with because there's no one else to hang around with. You couldn't even do business. You had to do business with the Gentiles. You had to buy your stuff from the Gentiles. No Jew was going to sell you anything. So they absolutely hate you. All right, so up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, who is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient and knows everything, he clearly has the ability to call anyone from anywhere to be his disciple. He's here as the very son of God and can do whatever he wants. So the whole world is available to you. If you want to do it, you can call any Roman, any, anybody. You can call. Who in the world does Jesus go about calling? Well, up to this point, Jesus has called Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Fishermen. Just got done. Just, just a few sermons ago, just a, just a probably at the beginning of this chapter, remember he goes in the boat and, they, and he has them row out a little bit as he's preaching to the people. And when he gets done, they put the net in and they catch this huge catch of fish and they fall down at his feet and worship him. And he says, don't worry, from now on you're going to catch men. Okay. Then the next incident in this book is the leper comes to him and says, will you cure me? And Jesus touches the leper. They're untouchable. Don't touch those folks. They, they make you unclean. Not when Jesus touches you. Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. And then, next account in the book of Luke, is this guy who comes onto the ceiling and he forgives his sin. Now, you're like, okay, what else are you going to do? Well, this is exactly what else he's going to do. He's out there with the Pharisees not far behind him, and he actually calls a tax collector and says, come follow me. Now, generally, you know, it's most profitable to preach what's in the text and to not speculate too much about what's not in the text. But for just a moment here, I want you to just stop and, and just think. 
just imagine that you're either Peter, Andrew, James, or John, and you have left everything. You've left your nets. You've walked away from the family business, and you're now following Jesus. I mean, you have hooked your wagon to this guy, and there's, at this point, really no getting away from him. And really? You called this guy? We're supposed to be building the kingdom, remember? We are supposed to be getting a crowd here. We're looking to get the nation to follow us. You're supposed to be the king. We're supposed to sit on 12 thrones. I mean, you called us. We know who the Messiah is. We know what the Messiah is supposed to do. And you're supposed to be the king of Israel. What in the world are you doing calling a tax collector? What am I going to tell my family? What, what am I going to tell my friends? What am I going to say to people when I go to the synagogue? Hey, you, Jesus, you're following that guy? He just called a tax collector to be one of his disciples. You hang around with tax collectors now? You know what? There's not a word of that. None of that is in the text. Seems pretty hard to believe they didn't think it. Because we know that they do think about sitting on the 12 thrones, and that does kind of occupy their minds. These are guys who go down the road and sit around and literally argue with one another about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's, that's, that's who these guys actually are. So when Jesus calls this tax collector, one could only imagine the glances that kind of went amongst one another. What, what, <laughs> what is he doing? Is this going to further our cause? Is this, okay, to forgive the leper and touch him, yep. To forgive the guy, I, but tax collectors? You're forgiving tax collectors? So what, do we take anybody here? Yeah. Yeah, actually, we do. Yeah. That is Jesus' exact point. That is why this account occurs exactly where it occurs. Jesus is making the deliberate, in-your-face point that, yes, I will call the dregs of society. I will call the, the outcasts of the outcasts, the, the most despised, hated person in this whole area. He's mine. And I'm going to call him. And you think forgiving the guy who got let down in the, in the roof with something, I'm going to forgive Levi. I'm going to forgive this tax collector. I am going to make him one of my disciples. Jesus loves Sinners. Jesus loves the outcast. And by the way, since the scribes and Pharisees are following him, and as if we haven't already driven a, written a bright enough line on the ground, we're going we're gonna to brighten it up even brighter. Guess what? This guy is with me. Matthew, or Levi, as he's called, is with me. Now, who is this guy, Levi or Matthew? This is the guy that actually wrote the Gospel of Matthew. This is, this, this is who he is. You know, you had the Greek and the Roman version of your name. So this guy wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Now, of all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, anybody give me a quote from Matthew? I mean, Matthew said, All four Gospels, we never hear a word. He never says a word. Nothing. Even in his own Gospel. He never says a word. We have, we, we have no idea what this guy said. It's not in Acts. It's not in Matthew. It's not in Mark. It's not in Luke. It's not in John. He never says anything. There is no quote that says, and Matthew said, 
Now, Peter, Peter, he's talking all the time. You can find any number of places where Peter says all kinds of crazy stuff. John, Matthew, nothing. Why? Humility, right? This, he doesn't have anything to say. I'm just with Jesus. I'm, I'm just with Jesus. I, I can't believe he called me. I can't believe he stopped. I can't believe of all the people of, in, in this place, uh, the most unlikely, the, the most unbelievable of people for Jesus to actually stop and call was me. I, I, who am I? Clearly, you know, he's, I mean, he's, he's sitting there doing what? I'm, he's collecting taxes. I mean, he knows everybody in the place hates him. You know, that's not news. You knew that before you ever took the job. And so there he is sitting there. No friends, no family, can't go in the synagogue. His nation hates him. People are trying to kill him. But Jesus looks at him and says, come follow me. He knows the preaching of Jesus. He knows the preaching of John. John, by the way, John the Baptist is still alive. He hasn't been arrested just yet. And, and so when Jesus says to him, follow me, um, okay, I'm... Yeah, I am a sinner. I have betrayed my country, my family, my synagogue. I've taken money from people. I've given it to the Gentiles. Uh, there is, really, I can actually escape this disaster that I've made of my life, of all of these horrific choices I've made? You mean to tell me I can actually get out of that? It's like being, oh, I don't know, say, born again, could one imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. You actually can get out of all that and enter into a new life. And that is exactly what Matthew takes him up on. When Jesus says, follow me, it's, it's you know, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He knows what he's being asked to do. And so that's exactly what he does. He gets up and he leaves it all and he follows Jesus. That's it. I'm just going to go follow Jesus. I, I, I don't care about this business anymore. I, I don't care. I'm done with it. And by the way, that, I mean, he's abandoning it. You don't get a second shot at that. They're not, you, you walk away from them collecting taxes. There's lots of folks who want that. And you're not going to come back. But he had chosen, clearly, money over everything else. That's what he did. And he came to a point in life where, well, what am I going to do with my life? I'm going to make money. That's what I'm going to do. And how can I make the most money around here? Well, obviously, being a tax collector is probably the best shot I've got in making the most amount of money. Yeah, but your family's going to hate you. Yeah, that's their tough luck. Maybe I'll give them enough money, they'll love me. Yeah, but your society, your synagogue, your neighbor, I, I don't care. All I care about is me and making money. Okay, well, how did that end up? Well, it ended up like it always ends up. Yeah, okay, maybe you did get money, and you're completely miserable. Jesus comes along and gives you the, the, the opportunity to get out of that, and he immediately takes it. He just gets up and walks away from it all. Why? Well, because... Jesus gave him a second chance. So he took it. And, of course, like everybody else who is a new Christian, by the way, when you're a new Christian, when the gospel just really comes to life for you and you actually have your sins forgiven, there's one thing that universally characterizes new Christians. You have to tell everybody. I mean, you just can't shut up about it. I cannot believe this. My sins are forgiven. God has actually accepted me. And you want to tell everybody. Well, Levi, he wants to tell everybody. So what does he do? He throws a big reception. He shows this, this huge reception so that he can tell everybody and introduce them all to Jesus. 
when you try to share the gospel, you know, you can get into all kinds of crazy theological discussions and wrangling about verses and wind up in Revelation and who knows, Ezekiel and the spaceship and who knows where. You, you know what? Just tell them what God has done for you. Just tell them what God has done for you. I, you don't stand to argue about it. In fact, they can't argue about what God has done for you. I was a sinner and God forgave me. And that same forgiveness is available to you. And I don't want to sit around and argue about revelation. Let's just talk about the forgiveness of God. And it's how it's given by grace. So Levi gives this big reception at his house. Verse 29. And, well, who does he invite? All his friends. I mean, who else is he going to invite? Who in the world, seriously stop for a moment and think about this. Who is going to enter his house? Nobody. Nobody in this nation. I am not getting near that guy. He's a tax collector. You can't just throw out a general invitation and expect folks to show up. They're not going to show up. They don't want to go in a tax collector's house. So he throws this big reception for Jesus in his house, and there was a great crowd of what? Tax collectors and other people. And who are the <clears throat> other people? Well, we all know who the other people were. They were the dregs of society. They were the other outcasts. They were the other people who could actually show their face in Matthew's house. And it didn't really matter because they were already social outcasts. They were already, as it were, unclean. And they all show up. Now, wait a minute. Jesus, are you going to actually go in this house? I mean... There's a bunch of sinners. I mean, real sinners in there. You can actually hang around with a bunch of sinners? You're going you're gonna to go to this event that's populated by a bunch of sinners? Uh, yeah, actually, he is. Yes, yes, he is. He's going to go. And it's not going to sully him. He's going to be there to preach the truth to a group of people who desperately need to hear the truth. This is the very group of people who Jesus wants to reach. When it comes time for you to share the gospel, be careful about looking at certain people and thinking, oh man, I don't want to share the gospel with them. I mean, look at them. Okay, that's probably the very person who most needs the gospel. If you just share the gospel with fairly wealthy, well-to-do, pleasant, happy people who are polite, you know what, those folks, eh, yeah, good luck with that. Who needs God? They don't need God. Their life's already doing pretty good. It's not to say that God doesn't call some of those folks. He does. But the fact is, if you really want to be effective in your evangelism, preach it to people who need it. People who really need to hear it. So Jesus goes, and it says that Jesus goes there, and they're reclining at the table with him, with Jesus and Matthew. We don't put a lot of social weight on eating with people. You know, if you go to McDonald's and you sit at McDonald's and you eat with people, you know, I don't know. The person across the table from you, you might know, but everybody else in the place. So we don't really see anything too socially significant. Not this society. In this society, if you ate with people, ooh, you were associated with those people. You... We're going to see in just a second. We're going to get back to the scribes and Pharisees. They wouldn't go in the house, and they certainly are not going to sit and eat with these people. Because that would, I mean, if you break bread with these people, that would indicate a kinship with them. You have a kinship with them. 
and they're actually reclining. You know, this is not standing around eating hors d'oeuvres. This is, this is a real live meal. The table is very low. You lay it on your side, and you were pretty much stacked in there like sardines. You know, you were just right there, all around the table. And so you're right in there with <gasps> sinners. You're in there with the sinners. Uh-huh. Yep. That's where Jesus is, in there with the sinners. <clears throat> so verse 30. The event apparently breaks up, right? And everybody, and, and by the way, apparently Peter and Andrew and James and John are in there with Jesus, with, you know. And because, verse 30 says, the scribes and the Pharisees began to grumble at his disciples. You know, the, the thing breaks up, the disciples come out saying, why do you, now if they had just said, why does Jesus, but they don't, they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What are you doing following Jesus in there with the tax collectors and the sinners? Don't you understand they're going to make you all unclean? Um, well, uh, no. Uh, but before they have a chance, Jesus walks out. And Jesus replies to them. And here's what he says. It's not to those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Um, Jesus is basically saying, I am a soul doctor, and I am here to deal with those souls which are sick. Tax collectors and sinners know they need a savior. You bunch of self-righteous people, you refuse to repent. This is, and we'll get to it because it's in Luke, the story of the prodigal son is really not the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the elder brother. That's what that whole story is about. The prodigal is the tax collectors and the sinners who wake up that they're sitting there eating the pig's food and go, I will go back to my father. And I don't know whether he'll take me or not. I don't care. I'll go back as a servant. I repent. I repent. And they come back in repentance. The elder brother will not even go in the house. Well, here you are. Jesus is in there in Levi's house with the sinners. And where are the, where are the scribes and Pharisees? Outside. They won't even go in the house. What, what is wrong with you guys? Do you have any love for the sinners? Do you care for these people? Do you understand these folks need help? These folks are sick spiritually. These are the very people that need repentance. They need to enter into the kingdom of God. What's wrong with you guys? Jesus basically says to them. I'm offering them forgiveness. Which, by the way, I'm not offering you because you don't want it. You refuse to take it. They have challenged Jesus and he comes right back at them. How dare you go in there and eat with sinners? Well, because I'm here to seek and save that which is lost. And the self-righteous don't need a physician. You know, just let them sit and think about that for a minute, right? I mean, that is like a wet fish across the face, right? By the way, you guys refuse. Bright line. Jesus draws another bright line. It's like, what is wrong with you guys? Do you think God is as anxious to condemn people as you are? You guys have no, you guys don't care. Where's your heart? Where's your love? Don't you represent the love of God and the offer of forgiveness to people who are sinners? Oh, yeah, that's right. No, you don't. You don't. You don't care about them. 
As far as you're concerned, God can cast them into the place of eternal condemnation, and the sooner he does it, the better. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not them. Forgiveness. Compassion. He's not condoning their sin, right? He's, he's not going in there and telling them that, that their sinful life is okay. Levi has repented. He has left the tax-collecting profession. And others who were in there, if they wish to come to Jesus, they should probably get out of that profession too, the way it was practiced back then. I mean, if you're doing things that are illegal or unethical and dishonest, stop doing them. But Jesus loves sinners. If people say to you, I don't go to church. It's full of a bunch of religious hypocrites, and I hate religious hypocrites. Oh, well, good, you're in good company. Jesus hates them, too. And that's the only answer to give to them. Well, yeah, doesn't everybody? In fact, Jesus gave his strongest words against the religious hypocrites. So you and Jesus actually agree on a lot. You hate religious hypocrites? So did he. Maybe you should come to church and find out what Jesus actually said as opposed to what you just think he said. So they seemingly change the subject, but actually they don't. You get to verse 33, they say to him, while the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers, the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours, your disciples, you eat and drink. Probably said by the scribes, since they refer to the Pharisees. Um, when we look at this passage, this passage actually occurs in Matthew and in Mark. Remember that they fasted a lot. Uh, when we get to it in Luke 18, remember the, the sinner and the Pharisee are standing there in the temple praying. And the Pharisee, praying to himself says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even, well, like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and pay tithes of all I get. So fasting was twice a week, I and mean, it's a very common thing. They fasted at least twice a week. Now, when, this doesn't mean they didn't eat for 24 hours. They just probably didn't eat while the sun was up. Okay, so as soon as the sun came up, no more eating until the sun went down, then they ate. Um, Mark, when he relates this incident, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but when you, when you see it in Mark chapter 2, come to find out John's disciples are actually with the Pharisees. It's not just the Pharisees. Mark 2.18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So this was a fasting day for them. This is one of those twice a week you fast. Well, they were fasting. And they came to Jesus and said... Well, why do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours don't fast? Exact same words, exact... If, if you read Mark, you'll see it's, it's the identical incident. So the Pharisees are trying to do what, you know, the little bandwagon thing here, right? Now, the Pharisees have nothing to do with John the Baptist. They don't like John the Baptist. They didn't submit to the baptism of John the Baptist. None of them... When Jesus finally challenges them, they say to him, by whose authority do you do this? He said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll ask you a question. You answer me, and I'll, and I'll answer yours. Okay, John's baptism of God or men? <clears throat> well, if we say it's of God, he'll ask us why we didn't get baptized. But if we say it's of men, then people will stone us because everyone thought John was a prophet. Well, everybody but us. We, we, we can't say. 
then neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because, of course, it was the same authority as John's. The answer is identical. And you wouldn't listen to John, so you won't listen to Jesus. So these guys, they have no... But, but at this particular incident, because the disciples of John agree with them, hey, they're over there, you know, fasting with us. So let's throw this out at you. The disciples of John are fasting, and of course we are fasting, so why in the world aren't you guys fasting? Um, you do kind of feel bad for John's disciples at this point. Uh, the fact is that if they really kind of got what was going on here in the big picture theologically, they would have, like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they would have left John the Baptist and actually followed Jesus. That's, in fact, John would have told them to do that. He must increase, I must decrease. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Follow him. John would have encouraged his disciples to stop following him. His ministry was declining, and Jesus was growing. But anyway, so why in the world don't the disciples of Jesus fast? Well, all right, let's ask the question. Why are you fasting? Exactly why did the Pharisees and the disciples of John fast? Well, it's really clear, right? We are, we're fasting because we're begging God and we're trying to show our sincerity. We're trying to actually suffer just a little bit here. We're going to not eat. And when our stomach rumbles and we're hungry, we're going to take that time to pray to God and show him the, the weakness that sets in from not eating and that we are relying on God and we are serious about our, our prayers. And what we are praying is that God rescue us. Send us a deliverer. Send us your Messiah. Send us the one who is going to overthrow the Romans and is going to deliver us. And, and we are really serious about this. We want your blessing. We want you to pour out everything on us that, that we heard about back in our forefathers. And we are so serious about this prayer that we are going to fast and pray it. Okay. Guess what? I have good news for you guys. Uh, let me explain to you why my disciples don't fast. Here's why. You can't make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them. I'm the Messiah. We're having a party. Guess what? All your prayers have been answered. I'm the answer to your prayers. Stop fasting. Stop sitting around and asking God to send his Messiah. He's here. He's arrived. This is why my disciples don't fast. We're having a party because the Messiah is here. I am here to declare the acceptable year of the Lord, right? Jubilee. This is the moment. Drink the sweet. Eat the fat. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm the bridegroom. I'm with them. This is time to have the feast. Don't worry. Don't, don't worry. The day is going to come when the bridegroom will be taken away, referring, of course, to his death, and they'll fast in those days. But until those days arrive, we don't need to fast and pray that God will send a deliverer. The deliverer is literally standing in front of you if you would simply stop fasting and praying long enough to get delivered. Stop fasting and praying and repent. Kingdom of heaven is here. Just accept it. And so he now gives two illustrations. 
He says, I'm going I'm to help you think this through. Okay. So he says to them, look, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. This, of course, they didn't have pre-shrunk, any kind of pre-shrunk material. So here's what we've got. Now, stop and just think for a second about what he's actually saying. So you've got this tunic, right? You've got this, you know, the robe kind of a deal, right? With a, with a neck on it. You put it on. hangs on you. You've got two. You've got your old one that you wear all the time, day in, day out. It, the thing is probably now it's old, right? I mean, it's probably got stains on it. Who knows what's happened to it? Somewhere along the line, it either gets a rip or it actually has a piece of it wear out or something. But in your closet over here, you actually have a new one. It's nice. I mean, it's, it's, the color is good on it. it you know, it's, it's new. Okay, so you've ripped or torn or wore out a spot on your old one. Okay, so what are you going to do? Well, what you should do is take your old one Wad it up and throw it away, right? That's it. That's that old thing, who needs it? Get rid of it. It's got this huge rip in it. Okay, instead, what you do is you go over to your closet, you take out your brand new one, you get a pair of scissors, and you cut a big hole in it. What? And then you take the piece that you cut off of it, you put it over here, you put it on your old one, you sew it on there, and the next time you wash that thing, everywhere it's sewn, I mean, that piece shrinks and it just, and now your old one is ruined, and guess what? So there's your new one. What kind of an idiot solution is that? What are you doing over here ripping a hole in your new one? Why would you put a hole in the new one to fix the old one? Just throw the old one away and put on the new one. Now you've ruined both of them. If you insist on taking the old covenant, and the rip, by the way, the tear in the old covenant is this. It doesn't propitiate. It doesn't redeem. It doesn't satisfy. Your sin is never actually forgiven. You just give sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. I mean, they've been doing the morning and evening sacrifice for 1,500 years. They've been killing a lamb every morning and every evening. They've been doing the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, every year for 1,500 years. You have been doing this, who knows how many bulls and goats and how many animals do you have to kill? And by the way, does it work? No, it doesn't work. That's the Old Covenant. It brings you to where you want to throw it away and put on the new covenant, which is what? The death of Jesus actually works. His death actually forgives sin. Don't try to rip the forgiveness of Jesus and patch it on to the old covenant. You'll ruin them both. Next illustration, very similar, right? If you make wine, you have a skin which is generally the stomach of some animal. And you take the fresh grape juice that you just squeezed and you pour it in there and you put the cap on it nice and tight and when it ferments, which it will, that thing is going to swell up. And it only has one swelling in it, that's it. And when it's done swelling up, well now the thing is full of wine. It's great, it's good, it was a common thing. I mean they had terrible water back then and so you mixed your wine with the water so that you could kill the bacteria, although they didn't know that. They just knew that you stayed healthy if you mixed a little wine with the water. So, but if you now take those old wineskins 
and you pour a bunch of new grape juice in them, they are not going to swell twice. So you've got your grape vine, you've watered it, you've tilled it, you've kept the bugs off it, you've worked yourself like crazy to get this thing, you've squeezed the grape juice, you've pulled it out, you've separated out all the grape skins and everything, and then them nets like we have, right? So you, and now you've finally got your nice great grape juice, and you, and you put it in this thing, and you put the cap on it, and you, and you wait, and guess what? Not only did you destroy the skin, it, it's now all over the floor. You've lost your wine, and you've lost the skin. You cannot take the new covenant and pour it into the old covenant. You need to get rid of the old covenant. And by the way, the longer you keep drinking the old covenant, the longer you stay at it, the less appealing the new covenant is going to be, which is exactly what he says. No one after drinking old wine wishes for new. He says the old is good enough. I like the old. Stop drinking the old. Stop drinking at this. At this. Stop. Otherwise, you're never going to you're never going to, you're going to miss the kingdom. It's going to come and you're, and you're going to miss it. The broad picture of the kingdom of God is to bring in sinners. Bring in the sinners. Offer them forgiveness. Make them part of the kingdom. I mean, we're going to see this over and over and over as the book proceeds to unfold. Jesus is going to continuously come back to this thing. The Pharisees just want to get themselves in and close the door. Jesus wants everybody to come in. Throw out the net. I've invited them to my feast and they won't come. We'll go into the highways and byways and compel them to come. Preach the gospel to everybody. Don't sit and think that, well, God only calls nice folks. God calls sinners. That's why we're here. You have looked in the mirror of late, right? I mean, you have actually stared down into the mirror of your soul, right? You you actually looked at who you are inside. I mean, you have been serious with yourself about that, right? Just what a sinner you actually are. And if you haven't, you need to. You, you can't slander human nature. It's impossible. No matter how bad you make it, it's worse. That's who we are. And yet God loves us. And God reaches out to us. And God gives himself to us. This is the message. And Jesus is making it very, very clear. Pharisees, no. You and your self-righteous judgmentalism, go away. Sinners, come. Come. That's the message. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you love sinners. Otherwise, you wouldn't love us. So, Lord, we are, we are just thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your love for us. We're thankful that you were willing to come down to this earth and to not just speak it, but live it. To actually go into the tax collector's home and offer forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for the great God you are. May we wisely emulate you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.